Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Is anybody else excited today to get into the Word? Man, let's do it. I'm excited. Let's, let's have some fun here, man. Um, it's fun to me. I don't know. Maybe boring to you, but I'm, I'm ready to have some fun here. You know, we, in our culture, we use the word perfect a, a little loosely. I, and when I say a little loosely, I mean just downright sloppily. Uh, we say the word perfect and really just mean very good. And sometimes just, just good. It's like, how are you doing today? Perfect. No, you're not. Right? You're not perfect. You're nowhere even close to feeling perfect. In fact, you probably feel miserable and you're just masking or projecting perfection, right? Uh, or maybe you say, um, hey, how's your, how's your burger? And the other person says, perfect. No, it's not. There's a better burger. There is a more perfect burger. You could go to some, you know, exquisite cuisine and they would give you a better one. So we would just use that word sloppily. Watch the NBA slam dunk contest here in a few weeks. They're going to give a bunch of tens. There are better dunkers. There are better dunks. And so we, we sloppily use the, the standard of perfection. Some of you guys are school teachers and you give out A pluses on work. And maybe you wrote essays and you got A pluses. No, it's not. It's not a perfect, right? A plus is perfection. You don't see perfect work as a teacher. And so we sort of sloppily throw around the label of perfection, just culturally speaking. And that's okay. I'm not here to harp on that. I get on a soapbox. I have a point that I'm getting to. And that's that when the author of Hebrews uses the word perfect, he is using it in the truest sense. He's not talking about a high priest, which we're going to see that's very good, that's just better than the rest of them. No, no, no. When he uses the word perfect or perfection, he literally means that. And that is really, really important for what we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter 7. Perfect at what? Because again, we're going to be talking about a high priest that is perfect. And spoiler alert, his name is Jesus. Okay, we're going to get there about who this high priest is, why he's so wonderful. But perfect at what? Here's what a high priest was supposed to do. Here's what their job was. Two things. Number one, representing, and I don't mean like represent. That's not what I mean. I mean, like, he was representative of the people that he brought with him. He represented all of the nation of Israel, and so a high priest was a representative. Number one, he was representing. The second thing is that he was to resolve. He's representing, and he is resolving. He did both of those things through mediating. So, listen, if, you, if you're the first time with us today and you haven't been here as you've been walking through the book of Hebrews, I've tried to say this often when we talk about the word priest, and you're going to hear that word priest or priesthood several times today. Our minds tend to go to things in our modern day when we hear the word priest, but we can't do that. We have to go back in time and see that a priest, by definition, is simply a mediator. It's someone that comes between two parties that are in conflict. So when you read about priest or priesthood in the Bible, don't think about the guy that goes with Catholic confessional. That's, that's not at all what the Bible means by a priest. It means a mediator, an intercessor. And in our culture, if you have a mediator, it implies that there's conflict between two parties, right? Well, that's really the basis of the bad news that leads to the good news of the gospel, that we're at conflict with God. And so as a high priest, as a representative, he both, again, Jesus being the greatest high priest, he represents God perfectly because he's the son of God. He is God incarnate. But he also represents man perfectly because he's, he liked to call himself the son of man. He is the representative of man. 100% God, and yet at the same time, 100% man. And so Jesus represents both and mediates while doing so. Really a powerful doctrine. But he also resolves, and that was the job of a high priest, to resolve the conflict, and the conflict being between holy God and you and me, which we're far from holy. We're not perfect, right? So we're sinful creatures, but Jesus comes between those, mediating those two parties, and his job is to resolve. In other words, to bring peace. To make peace. That was his job. And so Jesus is a representative, 
but he's also a peace bringer, a peacemaker. And I just use that as a way of introduction because I know there are people here that haven't been here for this whole thing as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. So as we look at Hebrews 7 now, verses 11 through, by the way, it says 22 on the screen. We're actually just going to go to verse 19 today. I called an audible on that one. It's just a lot. So we're going to go through verse 19, and I want you to keep in mind the role of a priest, a mediator to represent God and man, but also to bring peace between the two. So let's check it out. Hebrews 7, we're going to look at verses 11 through 19, and let's do it together now. It says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek. We talked about him at length last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. Rather than one named after the order of Aaron, which would be the Levites. Four, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A lot of stuff here about priests and priesthood, and again, that guy Melchizedek. You know, when I was uh, growing up, we didn't have a, a lot of money. We, we were fine, and God took care of us, but we didn't have a whole lot of things. And so, um, also, we, there were four children in my family, and that's not a great combo to be able to eat fancy things. I don't know if you were aware of that. But uh, one of the things that I would always see commercials about that I really wanted to have was um, Hot Pockets. Like, really wanted to have Hot Pockets. And my mom was like, no, Caleb, they're way too expensive. I was like, but it's, it's a pizza in a pocket. Mom, it's, it's a pizza. You just put it in the, it's, it's ready. And she's like, I understand that, but you can't have that because they're very expensive. And so when I went to college, I think you know where I'm getting. I bought a lot of Hot Pockets. Like, I lived on Hot Pockets. I was like, I've got a job, and I can buy my own food, and I'm just going to go crazy with Hot Pockets. And you know what? Now I'm cool if I never see one again. I'm cool if I never see one again, and I realize that maybe that obsession was a little bit needed to be curbed, but listen, I hope that that isn't how you view the priesthood when we're done with Hebrews. <laughs> like, that this wasn't something on your radar, and so Caleb comes in, he says, we're going to go through Hebrews, and you're like, cool, I've never gone through that before, and now we get through this really deep and murky water about a priesthood, and I don't want you to get so gun-shy at the end of this thing that you're like, I'm cool if I just never hear that word again, okay? Because it is a really, really foundational and important doctrine. We care about the priesthood, because without it, we have no gospel, okay? We care about the priesthood, the intermediating, mediating work of Jesus, because without it, we have no salvation. We, talk, we like to use the word salvation, God's grace. Without it, we don't have those things. So the priesthood is extremely important, and so I hope that it's a balanced part of your breakfast and lunch and dinner for the rest of your life, because this stuff is really important. Without the perfect high priest, we have what I'm going to call, number one behind me, a perfect problem. We have a perfect problem, and that's going to be one of the things that we're going to see this morning. We have the perfect problem, and when I say the perfect problem, it means that we aren't perfect. We have a perfect problem. We, we don't bring perfection to the table, and therefore we have a perfect problem, and that problem is the opposite of perfect. That's imperfection, right? That we fall short of the glory of God, as, as God's Word tells us, that we are sinful creatures who 
don't measure up to what it means to be a holy and sinless person. And so what, we, what people need, what you and I need, is very simply to be made perfect. That sounds like bad news, does it not? For each person in this room, the fact that we gotta be perfect to attain heaven or whatever have you, that's real bad news. Because I don't know about you, but I don't, actually I do know about you, we both don't measure up, right? If we need to be made perfect, that doesn't sound like a good start. And you may be thinking, well, I have to be made perfect? Doesn't God love me anyway? Absolutely, he does. However, he is still just, and he is still holy. He's a just God. He is a just God, meaning that he is a perfect judge. In other words, when we talk about God's grace, it's important that you understand, God doesn't overlook sin like a corrupt judge that can be coerced out of handing down justice. He must punish crime. He must punish sin, and therefore he does punish your sin, and we're guilty. But the good news of the gospel is that he, in his grace and mercy, gave that punishment to another, Jesus. He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't just pardon the guilty. He has to hand down the punishment. Why do people need perfection? Because only the perfect, only the holy can draw near to God. Only the holy can draw near to God. God is perfect in every way, and he can't be in the company of people like you and me and still maintain who he is, which is perfect, which is holiness. Go ahead and put that slide up there with the, the four things. Yeah, okay, so you don't have to write all this stuff down. In fact, I encourage you not to because it's a lot, but I just want you to see this with your eyes, and that is when the author of Hebrews uses the word perfect, he's not just talking about sinlessness. He may be talking about sinlessness, but he's talking about more than that. When the Bible talks about the fact that you and I need to be made perfect, we need to be made, as it says back in verse 11, perfection being attainable. Sure, we're talking about righteousness as far as moral perfection, but it's more than that. You see, what people looked forward to ever since the Garden of Eden when man sinned was that God would do something to four things. Number one, permanently forgive sins. That's part of the perfection, the finality of things. Permanently forgive sins. To permanently provide access to God. Think about what was lost in the garden. Access to God. And so we longed for the day that God would do something to reverse that curse. Number three, to permanently transform fallen human beings, and I would add to that just fallen creation, into then righteous and new and perfected creation. Finally, permanently. And then fourth, that God would permanently restore the rule of human beings on earth over the creation. And so I just want you to see that when we're talking about perfection here, this, this great salvation work of God, it's not just a matter of you getting to heaven. It's God reversing everything that was damaged in the garden. Don't you think that his eternal plan sort of closely is going to resemble his pre-sin plan? People with him for all of eternity. In fact, you're not just gonna be a, a celestial spirit ghost-like body forever. God has you a new and glorified body prepared for you if you're in Christ because that was his first plan and yet it's gonna be a redeemed and glorified plan. You go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. They were only in the garden as long as they were without sin and in the end, we wanna get to God and get with him and see that in, the, in heaven and the new earth, it is sinless. And so if the beginning was sinless, people were with God and the end is sinless and people were with God, what do we do now? Not with God. We're separated from him and that is the perfect problem. The Levitical priesthood was given to Israel. Oh, by the way, go ahead and go to the second one that has the blue. When I'm going to look at this slide from the rest of our time this, today, and I'm going to bring it up a few more times, those two are the ones that we're going to have to be identifying, okay? Those are the ones that are most pertinent. And you maybe could say the third one. We're not going to touch so much on the fourth, but I just want you to see that with your eyes. You don't have to write that down. But when we look at the Levitical priesthood that was given to Israel, it was given to Israel to identify this problem that we are imperfect. But listen, the Levitical priesthood, 
in the Old Testament was never given to them to fix that problem. It's very important. It was given to point out the problem, but never to permanently fix it. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, now, <clears throat> if perfection, again, here are those two things mainly. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, if it had been, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise, that's Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? In other words, if, if a priesthood comes with a, a system and a rule book and that was able to achieve the perfection that people need, then why would, why would God send Jesus, right? He, he wouldn't have. And so by very nature, we have to understand that this is a fallen system. It's one that would not perfect people. This is very important. A priesthood comes with, and I want you to think of like A and B, these two things have to come together. God gave them a priesthood in the Old Testament, and a priesthood must come with a set of rules, a, a rule book, sort of a, a system or an operating system. Uh, think about your phone. You may have an iPhone and, and be walking with Jesus, or you may have an Android and be far from him. That's a joke. <clears throat> maybe you could make the opposite argument too, right? Uh, you have an iPhone or an Android probably in your pocket, maybe even right now, and both of them come with a system. They call it an operating system. Uh, that's a way, way of saying a rule book. They have to operate within the confines of that rule book. In other words, your iPhone can do this. It can't do that. Your Android can send messages. It can't send an iMessage. And so there are things that within that operating system, you have to live by these parameters, and it can't go outside of these parameters. It was designed for that. It was never designed for that. If you want to go outside of the system, you'll need another device altogether. If you want to do this thing, you can't do it within that system. You have to go into a system that doesn't resemble that. The device in these terms, the phone is the Levitical priesthood, and the operating system is the law. It's the Mosaic law. The law of Moses was given to them, and it, this is what it said. You adhere perfectly to these laws, and you'll be righteous. No one could do that. In fact, it became very obvious very quickly that no one could do that. It made no one perfect. It simply was designed not to save or to make perfect, but to point out imperfections. That was the system. That was the operating system. And so if people want to be made perfect, they can't do it within the law. They got to go into another, and therefore they can't do it within that priesthood. That A and B go together. They have to go outside of that. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, means made right, perfect. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Did it perfect? No, it didn't. It, in fact, was the opposite. It pointed out the imperfect. It's like trying to get iMessage out of an Android. It can't be done. They would never get salvation, perfection out of the law the priestly system needed an overhaul. If the Levitical priesthood itself could obtain perfection, there would have been no need for another one to come, a savior to come. The point that the author is making, and we'll move on here in just a second, is that the old way, the Levitical priesthood, could not accomplish perfection, and so God made another way, a greater way, which is what we've titled this whole walk through the book of Hebrews, a greater way, and that is the perfect overhaul. Number two the perfect overhaul. Again, the law pointed out our problem, and therefore, the law came with the priesthood, and God said, if you want to be made perfect, you can't do it with this priesthood, let's overhaul the system. Let's totally change directions, and I'm going to give you another. And the overhaul was from the tribe of Levi to the tribe of Judah, and beyond, we should say, but 
before we keep going with the passage. The Levitical priesthood was the backbone of the Jewish society. And this is the hard part of going through a book like Hebrews. In fact, right after our fourth born shepherd was born, uh, I had just a couple of weeks where I could really read a lot of Hebrews uh, in getting ready for chapter one, verse one, when we started looking through this thing. This was back in June. And I started to look closely, and I'd already committed to this, and I, I love the book of Hebrews, but I never really studied it very closely. And then I remember sitting in the living room with Brooke and Shepard and all the other kids. We got rid of them temporarily uh, so that we could keep our sanity temporarily. And so we were sitting in the living room, and I remember reading all the way through Hebrews, and I looked up at Brooke when I got to about chapter four, and I said, I shouldn't have done this. I said, this is a bad commitment because some of this stuff can really bog you down. And the reason why is because you're not Jewish. At least I don't think you are. <laughs> but most of you are not Jewish anyway. And so because of that, you got to understand, when we talk about a law, a priesthood, it's hard for you to think that that's important. I get that. It's hard for you to think that's important. But for the first readers and the, for the people that this letter was intended for, you got to understand, to say that the law or the Levitical priesthood go down, down here, and something is greater, is really radical. It's very scandalous to them because the Jewish or the Levitical priesthood was the backbone of the Jewish society. It's the fabric of their covenant relationship with God. Listen, it was the system that showed them how to honor, please, and worship God. Do you think that's important? That's a little bit important. <laughs> that's a little bit important. How do you want to honor God? How do you want to please worship God? Here's the whole system. Here's the guidebook. This is what you should do. Now, what does it look like to say, hey, you know that whole system that taught you all those things? It's time to push that to the side. Something greater has come. What? It's hard for us to get in the framework of that. And so to introduce a new priesthood, and again, A and B go together, a new system that pivots from their backbone would have been radical. There's two ways that this overhaul introduces the greater, and these aren't going to be on the screen, but just listen up. Two things about this overhaul that are very important. Number one, it's an overhaul of a different tribe. It's a different tribe, okay? A different tribe. And this would be, again, maybe not as important to us, but very important to them that Jesus came from a different tribe than the one that all the priests came from, being Levi. It says, verse 13, For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Don't miss the word ever there. It means priest, altar. Never done. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with, the tribe, with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Moses wrote their Bible. I mean, he wrote the Old Testament, certainly from God, but from the pen of Moses. He wrote the book that said, these are, this is the system. These are the rules. And so Moses wrote that every priest that they had came from one tribe, and it was from the tribe of Levi, all of them. And if someone was to be a priest, they had to prove it through one primary means, genealogy from their descent. And so to say that Jesus is from a different tribe is crazy. That, that can't happen. Every priest we've ever had, they would say, is from this tribe. But Jesus was from Judah. Not one single priest would serve the altar. It's just his way of saying would be priests from there. But that tribe was known for two things, Judah was. Number one, it was known for a lot of kings. It was known for kings. But more importantly, it was known for the fact that a Messiah would come through Judah. It's a different tribe, but one of great importance. This overhaul is not a mere priest but a priest king who would be Christ, who would be Messiah. In fact, 
quoted next in reference to Melchizedek, uh, which you're going to see in verse 17, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've already looked at this in Hebrews, but Psalm 110 verse 1 said, the Lord says to my Lord, this is Father speaking to Son, Messiah, sit at my right hand, that's the role, right? Messiah, Christ, Son of God, you're right here until I make your enemies your footstool. Three verses later in Psalm 110 verse 4, you're going to read you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The reason that's important is to understand this priest is also Messiah, from not the tribe of Levi, I can't be, but from the tribe of Judah. And so not only is this of a different tribe, but also number two, it's an indestructible life. And this is how Jesus really differs from any Levitical priest. This is very important. An indestructible life. Levitical priesthood genealogies meant death. They meant bodily descent. You don't get a genealogy really unless you're talking about people dying at the end of the day, right? Genealogy requires that not only are they giving birth, that, but these people don't live forever. They eventually die. And so by saying that a Levitical priesthood is by genealogy, it requires that it's being passed down and passed down and passed down through death. Jesus is different than that. Jesus is different than that. Look at verses 15 and 17. This becomes even more evident, so the greatness of Jesus' priesthood, more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, listen, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Last week we saw, we read about this priestly order of Melchizedek, a, a priesthood predating Levi and the Levitical tribes so way before that. Back in chapter seven, verse three, we saw this. I'm gonna read it. He is, that's Melchizedek, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of, of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And again, we spoke about this, but that's not speaking literally that he never had a mom or dad. It means in the text, we see nothing about his, his upbringing. We see nothing about his descent, his genealogy, which means he wasn't a priest because of where he came from. He was a priest because God said, you're a priest. And that's more like Jesus' priesthood than Levi's. Jesus' life proved to be indestructible. And you may think, hold on a second, didn't he die? It sounds like he is very destructible, but that's not really what the author is saying. It's not that he couldn't die. He did die. That word indestructible, literally the, the Greek word, it means it's a life that cannot end. Is Jesus' life a life that cannot end? You better believe it is. You better believe it is. And he's making a distinguishing characteristic here, right? While his death was, wasn't his end, he resurrected. In contrast, those guys all died. That's the contrast, right, of verse 16. Legality versus power. Passing it down through death, power through no more death. He's contrasting these two things. One was through familial descent. One was through resurrection. One was following death, pass it on to the next life. One was following death, you will now have new life. One was through dying priests to dying men. One was through a priest forever, after it says in verse 17, that you and I may live forever. Not perish, as we like to say from John three sixteen, but have eternal life. And that's only because our priest will never die. He's indestructible. And as I said earlier, and this is a really important framework, a priesthood and a system, they go together. A rule book. The operating system, the priesthood, they have to go together. And so if a priesthood comes with a system, a rule book, sort of a covenant, and the, the, the Levitical priesthood came with the law, then what does Jesus' priesthood come with? What's the system? What's the operating system? Hebrews 9.15 says, and you can flip over and see it if you want to. Hebrews 9.15 is right there. It's going to, be on, going to be on the screen as well. Listen going to be a new rule book, a new system, a new operating system, a new covenant. It says this, therefore, 
Check this out. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that, listen, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You may not really understand the richness of what we just read, but what that means is the burden of the old has been lifted by the new. That's the operating system, that Jesus isn't just a mediator. He is the sacrifice. Luke twenty-two twenty says, and likewise, this is when they were taking the last supper, Jesus with his disciples. He says, and likewise, the cup that after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Listen, priests were very comfortable with shedding blood, but they never shed human blood. They shed the blood of animals. That was the way that they brought the sacrifice, death in place of a death. You have sinned, we're gonna sacrifice this animal so that you don't have to die. Patchwork, every year patchwork. We'll come back and do it again next year. Jesus is saying with this new covenant, the new system is that he himself would accomplish it with his own blood. The good news of the gospel and the result of that is the solution to our perfect problem. And that's number three, the perfect solution. One of the hardest things about preaching is sprinkling application throughout it so as to keep your attention and keep you engaged because you these marvel movies are ruining your minds you know what i'm saying they're they're shortening our attention spans and so i'm going to backload really why this is so relevant to our lives so we'll get there in just a moment okay i could have easily picked on star wars too but i actually like star wars so whatever the perfect solution is what's about to be introduced. Now check this out. The solution is that we go from far to near. That's a very simple summary, that we go from far to near. And so what he's gonna do now, he's gonna compare two things. He's gonna say, on the one hand, you got this. On the other hand, you got this. On the one hand, you got the Levitical priesthood with this old operating system. On the other hand, you got the new priesthood of Jesus and a new operating system, a new covenant. Look at verses 18 and 19. Here you go, comparison, contrast. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. <laughs> Think about who he's talking to when he says that. You're the, the, the law you really uphold, this Levitic priesthood. No, no, he says, it's weakness and uselessness, put it aside. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That phrase, draw near, was a stunning thing to say to Jews, and it should be stunning to us. It should be stunning to us to say that something can happen to reverse the fact that we are distant from God and yet can be brought near. Put that image up there of that old temple that is really maybe complex and weird to understand. You see that guy that's standing in the middle of that room? Now, this is sort of an x-ray skeleton view, but you, up those like, little flight of stairs, you can see sort of a barrier beginning. That barrier actually went all the way across. The image is only showing you the inside of that place. That's the holy place being the center room, and the extra holy place, the, the holy of all the holies, is that back room that has the Ark of the Covenant and these two gigantic figures in it. And nobody was allowed to go in there except one guy once a year, and that was the high priest. And when he went in there one time, once a year, it represented the dwelling place of God. That's why I can go in there, because God is perfect. I'm not perfect. I can't go in there because God can't be with sin. So why did he go in? Why even once a year? Because if God was going to have a relationship with people like you and me, there had to be death in place of death. There had to be a sacrifice that was brought. 
And so the high priest went in to put a Band-Aid on a problem that needed surgery. He put a Band-Aid on and said, I'm going to buy time. This is not going to make perfect. That's part of the law. It won't make perfect, but it will be a Band-Aid to look forward to a time that God would do something to change the game. That system where a high priest would go in and bring that sacrifice, in verse 18, it calls that system weak and useless. Weak and useless, man. Weak and useless. It means, useless is what the ESV says. Your translation may say unprofitable. What it means is not that it had no use at all, but that it didn't fix the problem. It was ineffectual. It also calls it weak. How is it weak? Because it failed to give human beings any kind of hope. It failed to give us any kind of hope. Levitical priests didn't just fail to bring people near to God. Remember, go put that image back up there real quick. That place was for one guy. Everybody can go in there. Everybody, everybody could not go into the presence of God. We weren't worth, they weren't worthy to do that. And so they went in there. God was distant. He was right there among them, and yet he was so distant, a barrier between God and people. And listen, the Levitical priests didn't just fail to bring people near God. It reminded them that they were distant from him. Bringing these lives in there, sacrificing these lives, that wasn't just a reminder that they weren't near. It was a reminder that they themselves were distant. What a despairing thought. Every visit to the temple was a literal reminder of the barrier between God and man. That is hopeless, isn't it? That's weak. That's useless. Every visit, a reminder that God is distant from me. Try to measure up, and when you don't, come here and we'll patch you up. And the next year you come back. And we'll patch it up again. Guys, that is such a hopeless existence. You wouldn't even go to a mechanic that told you that. Much less somebody that was there to sustain your everlasting soul. That was the system. That was the rule book. It says it's set aside. This system of try to measure up. Listen again. Try to measure up. And when you don't, come here. And we will patch you up. The sad thing about that is that that hopeless message is preached in countless churches across the world. Oh, and try to measure up. And when you don't, come back here. And the preacher will preach a message that patches you up. And you'll go out and be in despair once again. What a sad existence. And fellowship, we will not settle for that. We will not settle for that message of utter despair. Far be it from me to come in here and preach to you the rule book that Jesus laid to rest. What is the new rule book? What is the new system? What is the new covenant? That Jesus doesn't just mediate as priest. Jesus died as the lamb. He doesn't just mediate as the priest. He didn't just die as the lamb. He also rose as the king. Come on, y'all. Praise God for that. That's the message of the gospel. That yet, you know what? If that that high priest does not come, you are hopeless. But because of the great high priest, Jesus, who went in our place and died in our place, that we could live with him, hope, man. So hopeful. What a message of hope. And far be it for me to bring to you this old, outdated rule book that says, go try harder and then come back and we'll fix you next week. Get out of here, man. That's just garbage. You have a greater hope, and his name is Jesus. Come to know him today. Put that Im- oh, images back up there. Okay, I um, told you, but it's sort of an x-ray view, sort of a skeleton view. 
that barrier between them, it may look like a folding door like your laundry room or something. That's not what it is. <laughs> it's not like a shower curtain or anything. This is a, a big and thick and very tall. You can see by scale the guy standing there in the middle of the room. A extreme, I think it's 30 feet, I think is how tall. Very tall curtain and very thick curtain. And that th curtain represented, it was very adorned and nice and, and beautiful. It was decorated. And that represented the divide, okay, between God and people. The divide that people couldn't go in there. God was there. And so there had to be a barrier between them. When Jesus died on the cross, we read that the veil was torn in two. The barrier between God and man was broken. By the way, it doesn't just say that the veil was torn in two. It, it says that it was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning that no man went in there and took a sword and sliced that thing up. And No, no, no. God tore that veil from top to bottom when he destroyed the barrier between you and him that you may have life and life indeed. That's why it says the veil, the curtain. We just looked at this, Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. Just look back there real quick. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, the last two verses of chapter 6 say, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters where? Into the inner place behind the curtain. A hope. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, meaning he went there first so that we could come in right after him. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, it says. A high priest forever not far but near that's why Ephesians 2 13 says but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus that's why Romans 8 38 and 39 says for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is yours that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord I think that means never. <laughs> I think that means nothing. What a blessing it is to say that we have a priesthood that doesn't just say, come and we'll fix it again next year. We'll fix it again next time. Go out and try harder. No, no, no. It says that he's a priest forever, meaning that he is always mediating, always perfecting, and always restoring and redeeming those who were far off, but God has brought near. What is, it was radical to the Jews. Only one guy could go there, but Jesus says, all may come. All may come. Let us never become desensitized to what a radical reality that is. Every one of their visits to the temple was a literal reminder of the barrier. Guys, every visit to this place for us is a reminder that the barrier is destroyed. For them, every time they went to the temple, was, God is distant. Let every time that you come here be a reminder that God is near, man, and you can be near to him. God did not design the law to save sinners, but to show sinners the need to be saved. It could not draw them closer to God. The law reveals and it exposes. Jesus saves. Guys, life out there is so exposing, isn't it? Life out there is so exposing. You go out into the world, you go out into your workplace, into your home, and you're exposed. By the way, people around you don't make you into things that you're not already. You say, my kids drive me crazy. No, they don't. You're already crazy. My workplace really tests my patience. No, you're already impatient. It just exposes you. That's what the world does. It exposes in you the sin that's already there. Life out there is so exposing. You are every day. In fact, today some of you will be, and certainly this week. Some of you will be exposed of your anger. You'll be exposed of your poor speech. You'll be exposed of your impatience. You'll absolutely be exposed of your lack of self-control and discipline. You'll be exposed of your poor time management. You'll be exposed of your lust that you can't seem to overcome. And then you come in here, and this Bible is just an additional mirror that sees HD vision. 
You think out there is exposing? You come in here and hear a word and see just how exposed that you can really be, right? You, you hear this and it exposes more of the sin within. That's why you guys like that phrase, Pastor, you really stepped on my toes today. No, I didn't. This did. This is an exposer. It's a mirror of HD vision that sees you for exactly who you are and then you see you for who you are. And it is in the wake of that exposing, listen, I know that's sad. Just hold on a second. It's in the wake of that exposing and sobering despair that I'm not about to leave you with a message of weakness and uselessness. Come to church and it'll get better. No, it won't. Being a good person, go, go try harder, it'll get better. No, it won't. No, that's what we sing. In Christ alone, our hope is found. All other ground is sinking sand. If you believe that, you need a message of hope. Not of despair, not of going out and trying harder. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Praise Jesus that, that is the case. And so today, here's your application. Don't go try harder. Don't expect to come here and have all your problems fixed. There is only one man who can resolve every conflict that you have in your spirit, and it's not the guy standing right here. It's the one who took your place on a cross and then vacated his own grave. Don't just cling to the church. As wonderful as our church is, amen. God is rocking this house, y'all. He is doing some work in Fellowship Baptist Church. Praise Jesus, he's doing it. But don't cling to this church. Cling to Jesus. Praise God for our mediator. Praise God for the lamb who died in our place that you could live in his. Praise God for our conquering king that we just got done singing about just a moment ago. And man, let me just say the one more thing here. Don't shackle yourself in chains where God has set you free. Because the despair is that you go out there and you feel extra guilty when you sin. But due to the work of Jesus, that judge doesn't just overlook your sin. He sees that it was paid in full. You have no reason to be guilty because he has declared you righteous and innocent. He's justified you. Don't shackle yourself in chains where God has set you free. And certainly it means go and pursue holiness. Go and pursue a lifestyle that resembles that of Jesus. That's not to say that we shouldn't go and strive to walk with the Lord. Please go and do so. Just don't find your hope in whether or not you do. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Don't shackle yourself in chains where God has set you free. That is why the priesthood is so important. And hot pockets may get old after a while, but for us that message simply cannot. May we never grow tired. I've said this already and I'll say it again. Some of you guys are here today, here for the first time even, or here for the 800th time. And yet you still feel the burden of guilt and shame because you know yourself. And yeah, you're, you know what, you listen to what I'm saying, you're like, yeah, well, you're right. The world's exposing, all right. In fact, what you're saying, yeah, it's exposing, all right. You know, when Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness, you know why they were? Because they had something to be ashamed about. They're exposed. And so that feeling that you're feeling right now, it's there for a reason. God does want you to be exposed, and he does want you to run wholeheartedly toward him, not to cower in shame, but to come to the one who can put away the shame. Some of you guys are here today, and you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never laid hold of that payment and said, I want it to be for me. But instead, you've come here and said, coming to church may fix it, but then you've gone out in despair because it doesn't. I've heard he's a, he's a pretty good preacher. Maybe he could fix it. I won't. I heard that the church is really growing. Maybe that'll fix it. It won't. 
And so if you're here today and you're wondering how people around you can be so full of joy and liberated from the shackles of shame and guilt, it is not because we have it all together. It's because Jesus has put us back together. And so today, I pray that you would give it up, man. Because I'm not here to tell you that that perfect judge is gonna overlook your sin when you die. I'm here to tell you that he has given a payment in your place, that he can pardon the evildoer because Jesus has died for all evil. He's not a corrupt judge that can be coerced out of his justice. He punishes it. He has just offered to be the one that bears the punishment. You can be redeemed. You can be rescued. And praise be unto God that you can be forgiven. Today, let today be the day. Give it up. And let us go and praise Jesus that we are not shackled anymore, but we are liberated to go make much of Jesus. Amen.